This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Maud Newton, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. I have been dying to ask you one question, and maybe we're doing this a little backwards, but mm, I don't really think so. Did the truth set you free? You know, it really has in a lot of ways. Obviously, there's a lot in the book about my family, the myriad dysfunction points going back many generations. But yeah, it set me free in the sense that I recognize that I'll continue to be dealing with all of this my whole life, but my relationship to it has really changed. Having many, many years of therapy was a really helpful prelude to writing the book, obviously. But I feel like I've really reached a different level of relationship to my own past and to my family's past. And that's felt really great. Ancestor Trouble is the book. The subtitle is A Reckoning and a Reconciliation. So I think we've just heard a little bit about the reconciliation piece, but would you set this book up for listeners? Because I think there are some folks who are going to think, oh, it's a memoir. It's absolutely the straight story of Maud and all of her generations of family, but it's actually bigger than that. Yeah. Well, thanks. So as you might imagine, over the years, many people heard stories about my family and they said, hey, why don't you write a memoir? I really wasn't very interested in writing a memoir as I perceived a memoir to be. So the idea of spending years working on a book about the issues in my immediate family, which I grew up with and was intimately familiar with, it felt like I would be locked in a closet with that somehow. And then I became sort of interested in looking backwards. As I write in the book, the more I learned about my family, the more complex the whole web started to be. And I realized from talking to writers over the years, the art that I love, we're all so preoccupied with these questions of what we take from our family, why we take those things. And so I was really interested in looking at my own family And also looking at these questions around genetic genealogy, the body, why are some of us beautiful, some of us not, all of those kinds of questions, questions around intergenerational trauma, questions around epigenetics and genetics questions around generational wealth, racism. You know, I really could see more and more the ways that my family tied into the problematic aspects of our country. Yeah. And then I knew from the start that I really wanted to take the book into spirituality around ancestors. And I was really kind of anxious as I write in the book about what that would mean but I went there. And we are going to get to that piece of the book. I do want to start with the idea that you were hearing these stories as a kid and you heard different versions from different members of your family. And then you started to realize that stuff wasn't adding up. Basically, the adults were doing what adults do, which we don't want to call it lying outright because, I mean, family mythology gets passed down and who knows what's what. I've heard different variations of stories and I'm like, well, that's the variation I actually like. So I'm going to work with that because it's funnier or it's bigger. But how do you start piecing together what's going on here? 
I was really fascinated by my mother's family. She and my grandmother, sometimes in tandem and sometimes separately, would tell these stories that were just amazing. You know, my mom grew up with all these different animals, which sounded like heaven to me. She had an alligator at one point who has that. She was always talking about cats and ducks and dogs and turtles, and my grandmother drew the line at monkeys, apparently. So when I was a little kid, this was really fascinating stuff. You know, I mean, there's nothing more appealing to a little kid than animals. But then there were these other stories. My grandmother would tell me about my mom's father, who allegedly married 13 times. I didn't hear that number until my teenage years or maybe early college. But, you know, my grandmother had nothing nice to say about him and very little to say about him, except that he was an alcoholic who ran around on her, basically. And her big thing was he spent so much money on booze and other women that I couldn't even buy your mother toothbrush kind of thing. My mom started filling it in. Her father, in her view, was really fun, larger than life. She was the one who said the number 13. And I think I probably had to hear that a few times before it really clicked. Oh, my God, 13 times. And I don't remember who told me the story of his father, but I think that's the one that I really get into in the book. He was said to have killed a man with a hay hook. And I feel like I heard that story from the two of them, different versions. Somehow I ended up with this picture of him as this swashbuckling Texan hothead getting in a fight in a bar after having too much bourbon. And that wasn't what I found. He did kill a neighbor with a hay hook, but he was acting in self-defense. The neighbor had been sent to jail for trying to rape his own stepdaughter. And my great-grandfather's testimony in the trial apparently was part of the reason that he went to jail. So it ended up being a much more sympathetic story than I expected, particularly because of my own history of being molested. I sort of thought, oh, my God, you know, this person defended this young woman in a way that nobody defended me when I was a kid. And here I was sort of being like, yeah, my great-grandfather killed a man with a hay hook, ha, ha, ha. You know, and it was actually a really kind of tragic story. He did end up dying in a mental institution, as I had been told. So here you are, digging around, piecing together documents. You're finding primary sources. But one of the things I found really fascinating as I was reading is you really leaned into things like online genealogy sites, but also you were spitting into test tubes. And this is in early days of all of this stuff. And privacy is always something that I'm thinking about, especially in terms of how we interact with each other online and who has our data and who doesn't and all of these things. And you essentially put yourself in the middle of the Wild West because this is early as all of this is happening. You have access to tools that some of these sites have discontinued because, frankly, they were goofy. (laughs) I knew that it was a terrible idea to spit into a test tube. I've always been really concerned about privacy, but I'm also really curious and the kind of person who just really wants to get at the truth of everything. It's a terrible idea to put our information into these databases, and I've done it multiple times, and I can't say that I won't do it again. There are so many parts of it that are dangerous. 
On the one hand, it's true that it does provide a lot of truth for people who want to know who their parents are. It's an amazing tool, but the potential racist uses of it are really disturbing. I get into some of that. And I think one thing that a lot of people don't appreciate when they put their data into these databases is that they're making a decision for people they're related to. So I have some half-siblings I don't know, for example, and I do feel a sense of responsibility for having put my information in there and that could have an impact on them. And my cousins, and I have a sister as well. What did your sister think about all of this as you were doing it? You know, my sister is very tolerant of me and she has a really different way of being in the world. And so I think her attitude was like, blessed do what you need to do, but I don't want to hear too much about it. And I definitely don't want to go there. Well, what's that old cliche? Be careful what happens when you get a writer in the family. I'm paraphrasing it poorly, but it's just anyone who has writers in their orbit, whether it's immediate family or friends, everything's fair game. Yeah. As you know, I write in the book about how with my sister, I really did try to keep her footprint in the book pretty small because she is a much more private person than I am. You know, whereas with my parents, it's not that I don't feel sympathy for them around this. I definitely do. But they knew I wanted to be a writer from the time I was like three years old. So it's like, well, you knew that and you chose to behave this way anyway. So here we go. Where did your curiosity take you? You're doing all these pieces. You've got the cover story in Harper's that becomes part of this book. There's some other magazine pieces, the books you're reviewing. It's all circling around this idea of what family is and what we pass on to each other. And it's not just the genetic traits, eye color and hair color. And I have a white father. And if we sit next to each other, it's very clear that we're related. I have a first cousin who's white, and yet we look remarkably similar. You can see echoes of our faces in each other. It's wild. DNA is really kind of amazing, and it's also very weird. Yeah, it's so true. And as you sort of allude to the fact that I was writing about this on my blog for many years, then the Harper's piece grew out of that. They asked me, Chris Beha, who is sort of an old online friend, asked me if I wanted to write it. And then I just realized, wow, this really is connected to so many things I'm obsessed with. And I had been viewing my genealogy research as this sort of distraction from my important work of writing my novel, important in quotes. And then my agent actually asked me if I wanted to write a book about it. And I said, well, yeah, maybe one day. And she kind of encouraged me to think about writing it sooner rather than later. And once I realized that I wanted to write about all these different larger issues, I became really excited about the idea of writing the book. You know, I kind of like took a weekend after she and I had that discussion. And I thought, is there any version of this that I do want to write? And then when I thought like, oh, I can really use my family as a jumping off point for 
all of this other stuff I'm interested in. Yeah, I got really excited. And I had also sort of been doing a lot of meditation and really like working on, you know, one of my family legacies is anger, actually. Years of therapy plus meditation, I was just really feeling very tender about it all and really kind of ready to explore it in a rational way. There's a lot of that in the book, but also in this more kind of open-hearted, like, what can I do with this mess for myself? And kind of like, is there a way this can be of service to other people? And family is so fraught for so many of us. But also, if you have larger-than-life characters in your family, which you do, and you're not alone in that, sometimes you can meet them on the page and think, where was the editor? And I think that happens more with fiction in some ways. I like to say to people, if you ever met so-and-so in a novel, you would actually think their editor had failed because there's too much. And the reality is that's Tuesday. Yeah, I definitely had that experience trying to write about my father, essentially, in fiction. People were often like, this character is not believable. No one would really behave that way. But luckily, early on, I took a class with the infamous Harry Cruz. And one of many helpful things that I learned from him is that it doesn't matter if it happened. For the purpose of fiction, you have to believe it on the page. And so it's the failing of the writer if it's not believable, regardless of whether it has a real-life counterpart. So I was so used to people recoiling from my father in fiction that it's been really interesting to see that people may still recoil from him in nonfiction, but it's a very different kind of reaction. They're much more fascinated. You describe your parents' marriage as a kind of homegrown eugenics project. My parents married because they believed they would have smart children together. That is not a small statement. Yeah, that was a heavy thing to sit with as a kid. And I knew very early on, I sort of sensed it before my mother articulated it to me. And once she did, it was a confirmation that I was expected to embody their hopes and dreams, which I suppose is a thing that all parents struggle with. It's sort of like, I want my kids to be great and I want them to be themselves and I want them to achieve all these things that I wasn't able to do. That was a heavy thing. And it was really my father's idea, which I sort of intuited later. Later on, kind of thinking about it over the years, I asked her, oh, was this his idea. And she said, oh, yeah. And, you know, which is not to say that she didn't participate eagerly, but that's kind of his way of viewing the world. I mean, your dad's an avowed white supremacist. You have some experiences from childhood that made it very clear that Black and brown people had no value in your dad's worldview. And... You take this head on and you've got some other family stories, too, that involve plantations and physically owning other people. And you don't shy away from any of it. And yet it is not probably the most comfortable concept to be wrestling with, especially in the pages of the book. I mean, this is going to be around for a very, very long time. When did you realize that you were going to have to really face this head on? and make it as much of the story as it is? That I knew from the beginning. You know, my father was such an overt white supremacist. 
in really very extreme ways, covering over black and brown children in our storybooks with nail polish, refusing to let us watch any shows with black and white children interacting with each other on them. He was an advocate of slavery. He was literally someone who believes that slavery should never have been outlawed and that it was a good that would have continued if Northern Bleeding Heart, as he put it, hadn't gotten involved. When you have a parent like that, I think you can't ignore that part of your family history in the way that maybe it's a little easier to do if you have a family that did enslave people, but it's sort of like, oh, yeah, we don't really want to think about that anymore. And that was a very painful thing to grow up with, but not nearly as painful as those histories are for the people my family enslaved or for their descendants. And so I've always been the kind of person who's been like, hey, guys, you know, this wasn't that long ago. And, you know, I have found over the years that it has made people uncomfortable often when I've brought this up, especially white people, I've found. And I really kind of judged them for that. And then in the course of this book, I came to realize that my beloved mother's mother's family, I also had ancestors who enslaved people on that side. And I realized that I had always divided my family into the racist side and the not racist side. And I should say, I have amazing relatives on my father's side of the family, who I will not mention because the book is a lot, but there are wonderful people. And I also like, I care about my father, despite all of this, recognizing like, oh, yeah, I don't get to have a good side and a bad side. This is the whole problem of my family. And I need to also sort of unerase in my memory casually racist things that my mom's mother would say that were an indication of how this legacy had continued in her own family and how she viewed certain kinds of work as work that Black people do and certain kinds of work as work that white people do. She was very poor. She grew up on a subsistence farm with a carpenter father, but nonetheless, she had privilege by virtue of her skin color. You know, it was really painful, honestly, to sort of reckon with that with my grandmother. And that gave me a little bit more sympathy for the people in my past who I would judge for not wanting to talk about slavery. And I think, too, race and class are so intertwined in America's story. And that includes all of us, regardless of how long your family's been here or not. I mean, the two are genuinely inseparable, if we really think about it for more than a minute. And your mother's story and her mother and the way marriage was in many ways a solution for women. And again, they they are women of their time. They are women of their situation. We could have a whole conversation about marriage separate from the book. And if marriage works for you, great, do it. That's fantastic. But the idea that marriage was the only thing you had unless you became a teacher or a nurse or a cleaning lady or a cook, those were your options. And in some cases, you became a cleaning lady and a cook when you got married. So (laughs) can we talk about the women in your family for a second? Because their trajectories 
in some ways are sort of classic stories, but in other ways they are not. This sort of theme that you're pulling out here in the book is one that I never fully really appreciated until I was writing this because both my grandmother and my mother, well, in my grandmother's case, she was, but they are such forces of nature. I mean, these are not easy people. These are not, as my mother would say, shrinking violets. These are people who say what they think and my mom in particular is just a whirlwind of activity and projects and self-direction. She's a joyfully intractable, which is something that I admire about her and that scares me, especially insofar as I see some of those impulses to a lesser degree in myself. I mean, my grandmother, she grew up in intense poverty. She got out of it. She did work really hard. And She got married late. I found in the course of the book that she was pregnant when she got married, which was really surprising, not because she was prude, but just because she was always so kind of sensible and dismissive of like the nonsense of men. So I really had to sit with that, like what was going on there? How did she end up with this guy who had already been married a few times? who was very charismatic, very talented, and really troubled. How did she end up becoming pregnant by someone like that? But she did sort of come from this family where, like, her sister was this beauty. The hopes of the family were pinned on the idea that her sister, Louise, might marry a rich man. And then her sister, for various reasons, ended up as my grandmother put it, losing her mind. And she, you know, was diagnosed with basically like a forerunner of schizophrenia. That was a common diagnosis at the time, dementia precox, and she was institutionalized. So that like kind of dashed the hopes of the family. So I think in my grandmother's case, this notion of marrying a wealthy man or a man who could lift her out of poverty with his ambition was a really appealing thing that was transmitted to my mother, who married this man she didn't love, she didn't like, but a man who was very smart and a man who wanted to have a family and raise smart children. In my mom's case, I think Mm -hmm. she internalized this. She married this man she didn't like, she didn't love, but he wanted a family and he wanted smart children, and he presented himself as a provider. That was the term she always used. You know, I think she thought that it was the wise choice to sort of hitch herself to this person. Wise choice too, but also really kind of the only option. I mean, she's not living in a major city. She has no real way of providing for herself in a lot of ways. She had been working as like okay. a secretary for like the Society for Petroleum Engineers. And that was sort of the nature of it all. I think she had taught school. I don't get into this in the book, but she had taught school. She had had various jobs, including actually being an early programmer for Texas Instruments. We now know that that meant different things at the time. But still, you know, she's super smart. But yeah, I think... Her options were really limited unless she kind of wanted to 
be a secretary her whole life. That was kind of the trajectory she was on. And she had also been married before my father, I should say, to another lawyer. And apparently that bad experience didn't lead her to recognize that maybe marrying a man for security and status and money was not the way to go. And as I write in the book, my mom ultimately is not someone who's interested in status. So she kind of wanted this, I think, for her children or at the moment. But ultimately, she's a religious fanatic living on the side of a mountain. So that's really more her jam. And one of the things you talk about quite a lot is this idea of emotional recurrence in families, that this is sort of the thread you've been pulling on. It's a really interesting way to approach family. We sort of have these set ideas of you only pass on certain things. But it becomes really clear as you move towards the end of the book that your family repeats itself again and again and again. And I don't know how much of that is nature. I don't know how much of that is simply the patterns you grow up with. And, you know, plenty of us repeat whatever came before, but it becomes really clear. And I'm wondering if you're willing to talk about what you may have changed in your own life when you saw these patterns emerging as you were writing this book and what made you say, oh, wait a minute, (laughs) that has to stop now. Absolutely. So I think the short answer to that question is that I've really kind of become more conscious about not approaching the patterns with fear and not sort of fearfully reacting against these patterns in my family. So for example, You know, my mother started a church in my living room when I was a kid. It was extreme. It was like a holy roller speaking in tongues, casting out demons kind of situation. My father was not okay with it. He continued to go to the Presbyterian church that they had joined together. And so from that experience, I became really afraid of religion when I got away from my family. I did believe in God insofar as I was very ready to believe that there was like a punishing deity who was like watching me to do something wrong and then would send me to hell. But I never sort of experienced that benevolent sense of like a loving God or anything. So I was like, get me away from this when I left. And over the course of writing this book, I really realized that spirituality, it doesn't have to be defined by that. It doesn't have to be defined by my family. I don't have to be afraid of those impulses in myself. At one time, I had a line in the book sort of like directly pointing out the irony that I was afraid of starting a church in my living room. And I've written a book that's kind of encouraging people to consider ancestors maybe through a spiritual lens if that lands for them. And my editor took it out and I thought, yeah, you know, I'll let the reader feel like they got that one, that they recognize that irony maybe. So I've changed a lot of things. And I think, you know, when I started writing the book, epigenetics was this really kind of emerging idea. And now I think we're all kind of familiar with this idea of intergenerational trauma. But because of when I started writing it, I really wanted to delve into like, what do we know? What can we know? What does the science say? Do I agree with the science? What are the limitations of the science? So it was really important to me to like really drill down 
into that. And the questions you ask are really interesting. And at one point too, you say our science is only as good as the questions we ask, which I think is important to remember because all of this is really emerging. We're living in a moment where science is changing radically and what we know and what we're able to know. I mean, we've seen the human gene mapped. I'm not sure I was expecting to see that in my lifetime. That felt like science fiction. And now it's like, oh no, we can find this and we can find that and we can identify this. And it really is the stuff of science fiction. And yet, no, it's Tuesday. Absolutely. With epigenetics, there's many members of the sort of scientific establishment look on the idea of intergenerational trauma sort of manifested epigenetically, which means through expression of our genes, they look on it with disdain. They say, sure, you know, with earthworms, this can happen with mice, but not with people you know, which is a kind of exceptionalism that I'm always a little bit leery of. And it's true at the same time that so far, the experiments that appear to show epigenetic changes being transmitted intergenerationally are flawed in various ways. However, this is one of those areas where I feel like maybe we can lean into our intuition a little bit. And maybe we can look at the facts before us in our own families and see not just our trajectory of our lives, maybe or our parents in some way, but our impulses, the things that trigger us seem so closely connected. Yeah, and I really wanted to look at like the twin studies, identical twins and all of that kind of stuff. I'm still really fascinated by this. But, you know, my intuition is that science just isn't able to account for all of this, that it's really complex. Epigenetics is an environmental change. We're affected by our environment. And so it's kind of a mess, but it was really exciting to sort of get in there and try to figure out what do we know, what can we know, and what do I feel comfortable sort of accepting for myself, even though science hasn't been able to bear it out yet. I'm always interested too. I think anytime we can challenge what our rigid definitions of family are or those familial relationships even, I think it is worth it for us to have those conversations and, and for us to look wherever it takes us. And your intuition took you to something I was really not expecting, which is this deeply spiritual piece at the end of the book, where you start thinking about ancestor veneration in a way that I'm familiar with. I mean, I'm half Asian. I get to Taipei and the first thing I do, I drop my bags at the hotel. I go to my uncle's house and I do pie pie because I'm in country and I don't even have to think about it. I know exactly what I'm doing and where my feet need to be and what my hands are doing and how to do this and how to do that and how not to upset anyone who doesn't need to be upset. But here you are thinking, I'm going to try this with some folks from Texas, and you have some people from Western Massachusetts as well, and some people from Florida. What was that like for you? I have to say it's so beautiful to hear you describe how ingrained that is for you and how natural it feels for you. I had an intuition when I started writing the book that I would find that ancestor spirituality was prevalent in the West at one time. And I did find that. You know, it's clear that in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, there was an idea that the wellness or the sort of state 
of the dead mattered. And that one way to make the dead be well was to reflect on them, venerate them is a charged word in our society, but engage in rituals around them. There's an element of worship, but there's just also an element of interaction. And this idea that the living and the dead have a continuing relationship. And most of my ancestors came from what is now England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland. And many of those traditions have been lost, which causes some historians to doubt that they existed. And I can't say with any certainty that they did because I can't go back in time and recreate everything that was. But we can see the church kind of dismantling these traditions across the world in real time. And we can see sort of vestiges of ancestral traditions that were erased by the church. So it was important to me to sort of find a way into it as a white person of European ancestry so that I didn't feel like a gross person stepping into someone else's traditions and appropriating without having the kind of connection that I felt I needed to have. It may be appropriate for other people to take on various traditions, but for myself, because of my family history, I felt like I want to find a way into this that feels true to me and to my ancestors. I was very scared. I didn't want to go into it from a sociological, standing outside it perspective. I didn't know if I would ever get beyond that. I was also, because of my mom and the demons and the whole thing, I was like, oh, God, like, what if I open some scary, crazy thing? But it's been really transformative to me to understand about these traditions and to sort of feel that I have established a kind of spiritual connection either with my ancestors or with them in my imagination. To me, the sort of, like, objective reality of it doesn't matter as much as the feeling of connecting to something about them in myself and the feeling of their spirit continuing in some way. If you sort of allow yourself to imagine backwards to a time where my ancestors weren't enslaving people, that's kind of lovely and expansive. You know, I'm not saying that this has to have any objective reality, but for me, I have felt the sort of imaginative sense of my ancestors not being opposed to what I'm doing, even the ones who enslaved people. And my ancestors, instead of being this like, duckness and this impediment and forcing me into an allegiance to something problematic, this sort of like wonderful, like, yes, you know, what you're doing is right. And our people were wrong. And that's been just a really cool thing, whether or not it has any reality outside of me and my brain. I mean, do we ever really have an objective lens on family anyway? I sort of feel like it's always a free for all. And, you know, so I have really mixed feelings about like Jung and Freud and all of it. But I went into all of that. And, you know, it's really interesting. Jung was engaging with this stuff. I feel like it's really sad to me that the West has discarded this. With the Enlightenment, especially, there was this idea that like, oh, we're getting rid of all of that. We don't have to be serfs because our ancestors were serfs and therefore they're kind of irrelevant. And it's like, there's really nothing more relevant 
than our ancestors. We have this notion as a society, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it, but we weirdly don't apply it to our own families. That's just odd because our families are our own history and our families make up the larger history. We have very fancy graveyards in some cases. We put people's names on buildings. There's so much that we do to make sure that we're, quote unquote, not forgotten. And yet, I don't think twice about lighting a little bit of incense for someone when they need And I was raised Unitarian. It's not a huge <laughs> leap from being raised Unitarian. I'm a, little, I'm a little jealous that you grew up Unitarian. It sounds lovely. It was. It was a lot of coffee and donuts and you know, learning to hang out with your neighbors and everything else. What's the thing you want readers to really understand about ancestor trouble? The real nut of it for me is that sometimes we think that avoiding the trouble uh, is the way to get past the trouble. But I think it was Rumi who said the way through the pain is through the pain. And it's maybe not the most appealing pitch, but it's true. The more that we can allow ourselves to kind of unclench around all of this, to really know the truths and not feel so stuck around it, just sort of acknowledge it to ourselves and then begin to acknowledge it more broadly in society. To me, that's just like the most obvious and beautiful kind of transformation that's possible. I think there's a real tendency among people whose ancestors did harm, you know, including people whose ancestors, like mine, killed Native people, displaced Native people, enslaved people, to sort of be like, oh, God, look at these inequities. What can we do? While not really kind of recognizing their own families direct participation in it. I feel like I would just encourage people to be brave around that and to really be willing to look at it and go there and be public and say, hey, my ancestors did this. And the more kind of acknowledgement on a mass scale of these personal stories, I feel like the more change is possible. And that feels like a really great place to wrap this episode. But before I do that, I am going to mention, it's really clear from having read the book that you have made peace with lots of parts of the story. Some intersect cleanly, some do not, but you have made your peace. And that's why it made it very easy to open with, did the truth set you free? Because I think it has. The other thing is too, there are lots of books that you mentioned in the course of Ancestor Trouble. We're going to drop them into the show notes for people to take a look at, including David Truer's book. So hopefully the next time I see you, you and I get to talk solely about Joan Didion. (laughs) We didn't get to work her in here. (laughs) This has been so lovely. I wish every interviewer this lovely. So thank you. Thank you, Maude. The new book is Ancestor Trouble, and it is out now. Hello, bookworms. It's time for another edition of the TBR Top Off, where we're going to recommend three titles for you to check out when you come in to pick up Maud Newton's new book, Ancestor Trouble. We all know books are like potato chips. You can't just take one. My name is Margie, speaking to you from my beautiful home store in Northville, Michigan. And with me once again is Mark. Hi, Mark. Hello, Margie. I'm coming to you guys from Cincinnati, Ohio. Very excited to talk about some yummy titles to go with this amazing book. Always. 
So I am going to go first today. So here are some titles to build that to be read pile. The first one I wanted to talk about is a book called When Time Stopped by Ariana Newman. I can't think of a book about tracing your ancestors without immediately thinking of this one. And I've never done this before, but the publisher description of this book is so perfect. I'm just going to read it. And I I dare you, I dare you to not be intrigued. In 1941, the first member of the Newman family was arrested for swimming in a stretch of river forbidden to Jews. He was transported to Auschwitz. 18 days later, his prison number was entered into the morgue book. Of 34 Newman family members living in Czechoslovakia before World War II, 25 were murdered by the Nazis. What Ariana Newman's father Hans experienced was unspeakable. Decades later, after he'd built an industrial empire in Venezuela, he couldn't bring himself to talk about it. Ariana knew nothing of his past, not even that his family was Jewish. When after his death, Hans left her a box crammed with letters, diary entries, and memorabilia, including an identification card with a different name, she felt she had permission to search into her father's past, which included a harrowing stint in Berlin smuggling secrets out to the Allies. When Time Stopped is two stories, the first of a woman who becomes an astonishingly tenacious detective, assembling the most devastating details of life and death in Nazi Germany, and the second of the man she's determined to understand, her own father. So this is not only a heartbreaking story of the past, but it's also really a heartwarming story of the present because Newman connects with all of these long lost relatives friends of the family from Czechoslovakia. So all of these webs of the Jewish diaspora that have spread out all over the place. And she comes to know these people, even though she didn't get to know them when her father was alive. Uh, And that is When Time Stopped by Ariana Newman. Sounds fantastic. I believe that was one of our monthly picks. Yes. um, From past year, I believe. And the book that I chose is also a former monthly pick for Barnes & Noble. Of course, um, Barnes & Noble is so smart. We've got great taste, guys. We would never <laughs> recommend terrible books to you. Just know it. The book I chose has a similar theme of exploring your roots in order to expand your own personal tree. And that book is Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss by the resplendent Margaret Rankle. Beautiful. This Oh, she's so good. This is a collection of short essays that loosely maps Rankle's journey from loved and supported child to loving and supporting caregiver. And it's interspersed with investigative type of essays that really observe the natural world, specifically in her backyard in Nashville. Oh my gosh, I love this book so much. Uh, the, The writing is tender and confident, and the essays are usually just a couple of pages. A lot of them have added illustrations by her brother that are beautiful and fit the story so well. But just the way that she braids together the life cycles of plants and animals and her own family members is really remarkable. Now that the weather is warming up, we're starting to see a lot more green out in the world. Thank you very much. Oh, I know. Yes, yes, please. I really just urge readers to take this book outdoors. It really is so complimentary to all the sensory experiences of outside, the sounds of birds and the smell of fresh grass. It really just adds to the experience. 
and also bring tissues because yeah, I yeah. really was on the verge of tears at every single story, even though they're only two pages long, they really pack a punch, but they're so, so beautiful. And that is Late Migrations by Margaret Rankle. Fabulous. So I have one more for us today. Yay. It is called The Girls Who Went Away. It's by Ann Fessler. This one not only has an affinity with ancestor trouble, it's also a great pick for Women's History Month. Before Road versus Wade, unexpected pregnancy, especially amongst school-age young women, was treated as social and moral suicide. And family and cultural pressures made it impossible to even admit you were pregnant, let alone keeping a baby. Uh, instead, girls would just disappear for a little while, living in isolation, and then giving birth and having the baby removed and put up for adoption. So Anne Fessler herself was surrendered as a baby, and at the time of writing had recently made contact with her birth mother, which or provided her with a lot of impetus to delve into this story. Fessler finally allows these women to have a voice delving into the shame and the heartache and manipulation by family and hospital staff that led to a lot of the women losing their babies, whether they wanted to or not. We also get to hear from people like Anne, men and women who were adopted at birth, and their attempts to find their birth parents through a web of bureaucracy and confidential information, and the varied reactions of birth parents when they are found. This is an excellent and important social history of a practice that tends to still be unspoken of, even though its ramifications are still going on. And that is The Girls Who Went Away by Anne Fessler. Fantastic. Oh, it's a really, really amazing group of stories. A really important part of the history of family that nobody ever talks about. So it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And that is going to do it for us today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Pour It Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Don't forget to like and follow and follow Barnes & Noble on social media at Barnes & Noble, easiest name ever. My name is Margie. You can follow my home store at BN Northville and me at Margie Bookbrain. And I am Mark coming to you from Cincinnati. My home store is BN Westchester, if you'd like to follow. And if you want to pop onto my meager in comparison to Margie's Instagram. <laughs> you can follow me on uh, bookmark 79. Thanks so much. Beautiful. Thanks everyone. Happy reading. Pour It Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.